Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. I don't know what got into y'all today. Whenever I stand with you and sing, I'm one of you, I'm with you, but I'm always asking and sensing, God, what are you doing in the room today? I don't know, y'all, he's doing something among you. He's doing something in you because today was different than most weeks. As you sang and prayed and worshiped God, something's happening in the room. I don't know what it is. I don't know what he's going to do right now with us, but God, here we are. Hearts are wide open to you. So here we go. We're going to jump right into his word, but I'm going to start with this question. Um, when you were a kid, if you wanted to sit in the front seat, you had to call shotgun. shotgun. Yeah. So weird. Y'all know where that came from, right? On the stagecoach, there was a driver. There was a guy next to him. He literally carried a shotgun to fight off bandits, right? Now, if you grew up in a family like I did, if you wanted the last pizza pizza, you had to call Dibs, yes, some of you know this. And I'll bet you 99.9% of you have no idea where that comes from. No joke, it comes from a 17th century game where you had to get these small objects that were known as dib stones. Did anybody know that? Yeah, but it's funny. We use these words that we don't really understand to make sure that we are, we're first. Because come on, let's just be honest for a second. We like being first. Some of you might not think like, no, other people, they like being first. I'm totally good being second. A couple of questions for you then. When you go to the grocery store, if you and yourself, or let's just take Costco, for example, and you go there, you look for the shortest line, right? And do you ever do this? I'll stay in this line, and you tell whoever came with you, you go in that line. Why? Because you want to be able to get to the register First, when you're driving down the street and you see the red light is there and there's all these cars ahead of you and they're filled in every other lane except your lane. And as you approach that red light, another car comes in front of you and it bugs you. Oh, you moaned. (laughs) You're bugged just a little bit because you're not, uh uh-huh, in a parking lot. Have you ever sped up to get to that one parking spot so that you could be first? Maybe after getting a 10% raise at work, you were thrilled, but did your attitude ever change, your feeling ever change when you realized, oh, everybody got a 10% raise because you thought you were first, right? There's something about us that we just like being first, right? Competitive people, they know that first is the best. Competitive people know that second place is simply the first There are some competitive people in the room. And competitive people know that anyone who feels good about second place is just comfortable being a a loser. That's right. Just comfortable being a loser. The truth is this. We like being first. The truth is we like it when other people see us being first. And the truth is we aren't always happy and we don't always celebrate when someone else is first. So we're going to do a a new series for just three weeks. You know we've been in this series in Mark the whole time, but uh, we're not actually leaving Mark. 
There's just three things that happen in Mark 10 that we're going to make a little mini-series out of. And uh, it, it comes from this verse right here. It'll be on the screen. It says this, Mark 10, 31. But many who are first will be last. And the last, first. So we're going to do a three-week mini-series called this, First the Worst. You know where that comes from, huh? Because when you were a kid and you were competing for something and you were second... You said that nonsensical phrase. It's like, oh, that's okay. First the worst, second the best, right? And we don't even, what does that mean? You didn't even know as a little kid you were actually quoting Jesus. First the worst. Three ways it shows up. Um, chapters 8, 9, and 10. We've been going over this again and again and again about how Jesus says, hey, I'm going to go die on a cross, and then his disciples don't really receive that well. They just selfishly respond with their agendas and them wanting to be first or whoever's the best, and they're arguing about that. And Jesus, in all three of those chapters, tries to teach them, I'm trying to help you be a servant. But then in chapter 10, there's three scenarios that come up that I believe that are all connected together where Jesus is trying to help them figure out how do I take last? How do I not take first place because first is the worst? And there's three areas. Let me just give them to you. Marriage, relationships with vulnerable people, and money. Marriage, the vulnerable, and money. And all three of these, he just says this, the first will be last and the last will be first. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to tackle marriage today, next week, the vulnerable, third week on that, money. Here's where Jesus starts. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. Okay, it's in your notes there. If you have a Bible, open it. I always encourage you, open your Bible. Bible's the number one tool that God gives us to grow up into mature followers of Christ, okay? And if I show this to you, and hopefully you've got a pen, maybe you'll underline some things or write some questions or or thoughts in the margin of your Bible. I just really want you to interact with this. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Pause, look at me. I need you to hear me on something. Because that's what we're going to talk about today. This is what we're heading into. Yes, it's about marriage, but mostly today is about divorce. Don't walk out of the room and don't change the channel. I need you to hear five things before you decide on where we're headed today. Um, the, the first, let me just be real honest. No one wants to talk about divorce today. Divorce people don't want to talk about divorce because it's personal and painful. Married people, they don't want to talk about divorce today. I mean, you don't want to think that I'm giving your, your spouse any suggestions, right? Those of you who grew up in a divorced family, you don't want to talk about divorce because it brings up painful memories. And the pastor, he doesn't want to talk about divorce either. He just wants people to like him. But the fact that none of us want to talk about it doesn't leave us the excuse because Jesus, right here in chapter 10, and if we're walking through Mark, we got to walk through all of it. Listen, if divorce is personal or painful for you, I want you to hear me say these five things. Number one, I am not speaking to your specific situation. Your spouse hasn't called me. Your ex did not email me this week. I I don't know your situation. And I tell you that because of this. I'm going to tell you what Jesus says about divorce. And in the midst of there, you're going to sit in your seat and you're going to say, but you don't know my situation. That's my point. I don't. 
And so I'm not actually speaking, telling you what to do. I'm just telling you what Jesus teaches on this. And you have to figure out, how do I follow Christ in the midst of my life and my situation? Number two, I honestly preach from a place of brokenness and grace. Every pastor does and every church does. Please do not think that divorce is one of those things in the church that the church is here to shame people on or that like we look down on people who've been divorced or think about getting divorced. Like, It's not. I know in the past you probably sat through some messages at some churches, hopefully not this church, that shamed people about that. And listen, that, that is not where we're headed today. Number three, our church literally wants to walk with you no matter where you've been or no matter what you decide. I know this. People who've been divorced in our church, they tell me, they're like, man, I just, I feel uncomfortable in church. And there's some things that maybe we say that make you feel uncomfortable. But here, here's, this is also true, that many divorced people, they just don't want to be around their Christian friends. And so they avoid church. So I just want to tell you this, this church, myself, the people who have the spiritual DNA of this church, we want to walk with you no matter where you've been or what you decide in the future. Because I know this, every, every divorce is tragic and painful. And when you're in your most painful place, isn't that when you need a support system around you? But sometimes the church hasn't historically always worked that way. Number four, divorce is always tragic and painful. There's a billboard in Chicago. Um, on, on the right side was this really good-looking guy with no shirt on. On the left side was a picture of this really good-looking woman with hardly anything on. And the middle of the billboard said this, Life is short, get a divorce. If it wasn't so disgusting, it'd be funny, because literally it was put out by a lawyer who was offering up their services to help people get divorced. There are no quick, easy, painless divorces. Those don't exist. Every divorce is tragic, and every divorce is is painful. Number five, we need to talk about divorce because the last two years have really stressed marriages, I think, more than ever before. So I want us to hear Jesus out on the topic of divorce. And I want you to know this, that we're in this together. Married people, single people, divorced people, we are all in this together. Instead of giving an answer to the question, is it lawful for man to divorce his wife? Here's what Jesus does. He turns this around and he just asks a question. Look at verse 3. What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. What are they referring to? It's actually in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. This is what Moses wrote under the authority of God, inspired by God. This is God's word. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. So just understand this. In the Old Testament, Moses, being driven by God, is writing these words of God, and he gives permission for divorce. There's actually a big controversy in Jesus' day in the first century about what that, how to interpret that phrase, if she did something indecent. Let me tell you that there's, uh, there were three rabbis in the first century there, and they each had different interpretations of what that meant. Let me give them to you. Uh, Rabbi Shammai, he taught his students that the phrase meant some kind of sexual impropriety. And some of you have been taught, well, it, it's in, in the Old Testament there, that sexual impropriety was adultery. It's actually, that's not actually true, um, because adultery in the Old Testament was punishable by death. Well, if so, if 
adultery was the case, why would you divorce the person that is going to be put to death? So that doesn't make sense. There's some kind of sexual impropriety, and Rabbi Shammai says that's what it is. Now, Rabbi Hillel, he had a different opinion. It was way looser than that. He taught his students that, quote, something indecent meant almost anything. He actually wrote that if your wife burned your dinner and it was displeasing to you, you could divorce her. And the wives are like, I ain't cooking dinner anymore then. (laughs) Rabbi Akiba, he taught his students that the phrase, who becomes displeasing to him, meant that a man could divorce his wife if he met a woman who was more beautiful than his wife. And then all the women said, that guy is an idiot. (laughs) So after the Pharisees, they quote Moses. This was the big, like, well, how's Jesus going to interpret it? And Jesus answered them this way, verse 5. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. What does he mean? Uh, Moses wrote this inspired by God, God's word, in a time when God's men didn't act like men. They acted like me first little boys. Come on. In this time, they took divorce flippantly. They didn't care about women. They would marry and then discard women without a certificate of divorce. And women couldn't marry someone else. They didn't have the protection that family provided. So God had Moses write up a law as a concession to the hard-heartedness and brokenness of humanity and his people. It's a concession to God's better way of staying married. It was God's actual protection over women so that they could get remarried. Not only that, but in the midst of this, uh, if you read all of Deuteronomy chapter 24, it will state that even if that woman gets remarried, if her future husband dies, the the first husband could not remarry her. There was a law against yo-yoing women, sending them away and go, no, 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 come on back. So it was interesting, this law in Deuteronomy, even though it's permissible to get divorced, it's actually God's concession and protection on women so that they could say, I'm no longer married there. Is there another family for me? Um, quick question for you. Why are the Pharisees asking Jesus about divorce? It seems out of place. As you kind of read through the text, it just seems like, well, that's out of the blue. Mark states that the Pharisees are actually testing Jesus. So question, what's their plan? Because they actually want to get rid of Jesus. So here's what you need. You need a little bit of the backstory in the first century. Where were they? If you go back to verse 1, we read that Jesus was in the region of Judea across the Jordan. This is the area where Herod Antipas ruled. Now, Herod and his wife Herodias. Just remember those two names. Herod, his wife Herodias. They were a scandalous celebrity couple. Herod divorced his wife so that he could marry Herodias. But Herodias was married to Herod's half-brother. So she divorced his half-brother so that she could marry Herod. I mean, it was this scandal. It was all over the tabloids. Everybody was tweeting about it. (laughs) And there is this man who criticized her, who said, it's not right that you just, you took your, the half-brother divorced him and And it's interesting because uh, the person who criticized him was John the Baptist. Remember what happened to him? Herodias had John the Baptist killed. That's why he died. Jesus is currently traveling through the region where Herod is ruling. 
And I'm betting that if these Pharisees can get Jesus to say something against divorce and they want to get rid of him, maybe if Herodias hears about it or Herod hears about it, they'll treat John the Baptist the same way. Or they'll treat Jesus the same way they treated John the Baptist. And they'll do, that Herodias will have to do their dirty work for them and get rid of Jesus. There's a little behind the scenes for you that I had actually never known before. Now, we're about to get clear about Jesus' teaching on divorce, so here he goes. Ready? Instead of talking about divorce and is it permissible, is God okay with it? Will God give me the thumbs up? Jesus responds with this, God's original design for marriage. That's where he goes, so that's where we're going to head. Take a look at your notes. Instead of looking at the exceptions for divorce, he just says this, I'm going to point you to the original tent. Here's his, his words. He says, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Let me just give you a few observations here. Number one, men and women, original marriage. They were designed to be different, but a fit for one another. Um, One of the fun things about pastoring is this, is um, mostly it's fun, uh, is coaching couples. They never call the, couple, the, the pastor and say, Pastor, man, marriage is awesome right now. Can we come in and meet? I hear things like, Pastor, I just don't understand her. She, she doesn't think like me. Because she's different. Pastor, I told him a thousand times, just share your feelings. He just doesn't get it. I know. Because he's different. Men and women are different. Biologically different physically different, emotionally different, relationally different, but not just different, but designed to fit together. There is a whole lot more teaching on this that I would love to get into, but I would have to jump outside the text on this, and I've got to stay focused. But there, I will say this, there are people today who are miseducating our kids that there is no difference between men and women. They're also teaching that there's not only no difference, but you can pick whichever one you want to be. I told you there's a lot more I can go into on this, but I just can't. But the truth of God that Jesus points to is this. is that he created them male and female. They're just, they're different. But they're a fit together. Why does this matter? It means this is that marriage is complex. And there's moments because of those differences that marriage can be, it can be hard. Why does this matter? By design. You, as your mature self, emotionally, relationally, socially, spiritually mature, meet a person who is emotionally, spiritually, socially, relationally mature, and you come together, and you will have road bumps along the way, but it will reveal the me-first mentality that we've lived with, where how we like to be first in our marriage, but listen, we're different but we're supposed to be a fit. Number two is this. We're designed to leave and cleave. What does that mean? It means this, that marriage ain't for mama's boys. <laughs> you can't put your mom first and your wife first. You got to put your wife first. And by the way, it's not just guys, right? There are plenty of uh, ladies who have strings attached to their parents and they have refused to choose their spouse as their primary support system. I mean, if, if we're going to get a little more technical, 
Marriage is difficult when we fail to leave our parents as the primary support system and we fail to cleave to our spouse as the number one person that we cleave to. I'll tell you why it gets even more difficult than this. We look to our spouse to to meet all of our needs. There's two other groups there. One is we need to rely on God to meet most of our needs, rely on our spouse to meet some of our needs, and rely on the tribe around us. And yet when we look at our spouse to, to meet all of our needs as if, oh, you complete me. Oh, my goodness. Sorry, I'll stop now. Designed to leave and cleave. Third is this. Designed for unity. The two must become one flesh. Husbands and wives, they're united physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Let me get technical for just a minute. Oxytocin is released in the body during sex, and that chemical is known to be associated with bonding, trust, and loyalty. Is a biological chemical bond, an emotional bond, and then God adds on top of that a spiritual bond that we really struggle to even explain. We're designed for oneness. Number four, we're designed to be inseparable. Let no one separate them. One, one commentator wrote this. He actually said this. Husbands and wives, they can't actually be separated. I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. There's husbands and wives all the time that separate. and They're no longer together. They get divorced. So how can you say that they can't be separated? Uh, example, uh, this morning I had my coffee. And I took my little creamer and I put it in the frother and hit the button and <laughs> frothed it up because that's how I roll. Don't, don't mock me. I know some of y'all, black coffee, that's what men drink, whatever. I took my frothed up cream and I poured it in my coffee, stirred it up just a little bit. And it was great. What if I gave that cup of coffee to you and I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to separate the cream from the coffee. Go for it. You can't. Because these, these two separate things were separate for a while, but we brought them together, stirred them up, and there is no separating them out. And this commentator was trying to make a point to say, what God has separated or joined together, no one can separate. I know we take it as let no one separate. Don't, don't stand in the way. Don't break them up. But he's saying you can't be separated because of this. You can't separate them into their old two selves without tearing them apart it's just not possible. If you divorce, you've become this one. And to separate, this is why divorce is so painful and so tragic. It's a separating of two things that don't actually separate back into their two holes. They're left with scars and pain. And listen to what he says next, verse 10. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery with her. This is about to get real. And as she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. By the way, just a side note on this. No one wrote about if a woman divorces her husband. It was, it was the Romans would practice that, but the Jewish people never did. In the Old Testament, all you'll hear about is uh, the man divorcing his wife. I mean, this is actually crazy liberating for women. In Jesus' eyes, be like, oh yeah, I'm just seeing that there are women who will divorce their husbands. This is what I think it means, and this is number five. Because of God's design for oneness, for unity, there's pain even after the divorce papers are signed. I know you might be thinking, where did he get that from? He talks about, you know, if once you divorce, if there's not an exception there, and if God's not smiling on it, just just understand 
that there's going to be pain even after the, the papers are signed. Now, for those of you that are divorced and, you know, the papers were signed, maybe there was relief, right? But can I ask you this? When your ex found someone else and started dating and they told you about it or they were getting remarried, you didn't have an emotionless response, did you? Maybe it was pain. Maybe it wasn't pain. Maybe it was less than that. Maybe it was just I was uncomfortable with it. It felt like something like a betrayal. Jesus is just saying this, that once after divorce, there's this thing that happens that if you move on, he uses the word adultery in here if there's not a biblical reason for divorce. And I'm just saying that after the divorce, it doesn't mean that the pain stops because there is a uniting that happened and took place. Many couples... uh, will attest to the fact that this is true in their relationship as well. Let me just say this. The last two years have been really challenging for a lot of couples. Because in your relationship before COVID, you had this protective system in your relationship called work travel. You traveled for business. And so the amount of hours that you had with your spouse every week... You could manage. I know it sounds weird, like, oh, I manage my wife or I manage my husband, but you weren't together. Then work travel got canceled and you were together all the time or you, you're no longer at your office. Maybe it wasn't just travel. You're no longer at your office and now you're together in the house all the time. And if you've got kids and you're trying to keep them on Zoom so they can stay in school, like, add a pandemic on that, add social unrest on that. And over the last two years, things have just blown up. I think this has been the most... The two most stressful years in anybody's marriage that I can ever remember, which is why we need to talk about this today. I think there's people who've been asking the question, would God be okay if I got divorced? And sometimes we disguise that by, I'm going to call the pastor and see what he thinks. Come on. I hate those conversations. And like Jesus, instead of giving you an answer, I'm just going to ask you some questions. (laughs) But what if we did what Jesus did? He just went back to God's original design for marriage. And what if we just said, listen, I recognize I'm designed to be different, but we're designed to be a fit. We're designed to leave and cleave. We're designed to be united. We're designed so that we can't ever be separated, not without great pain. And maybe we'll see what went wrong in God's original design. Maybe that's it. Maybe we'll recognize what's still going wrong. And maybe we'll recognize this. If God created it like that, he's going to be with us and give us resources to heal that and bring that back together. I'm not saying that every marriage, if you really focus on Christ, that that it's going to be perfect or that it will work out. Some of them don't. Here's why. Man, if we are really humble and really obedient to Christ, I don't think there's a marriage that Jesus can't heal. But I think we live in this me-first culture. And man, Here's what I hope you don't hear me saying. I'm not blaming you. I'm not shaming you. I just know that we live in a culture around us that is so me-first. But what if we went back to God's original design to see if he might heal and unite? Ask this big general question. What's Jesus doing in this passage? Pretty simple. He's trying to discourage people from getting divorced. 
And in the first century, they treated divorce flippantly. Like, ah, I'm done with her. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. That's not God's design. I also want to hear, I want you to hear me say this. Divorce is not unforgivable. There's only one unforgivable sin in all the text of the Bible. And that's denying Jesus, denying that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, lived inside of him. That he was God. I know pastors, when they preach this, they really want marriages to stay together. And so we often cross a line. And we say things like, and if you get divorced, and then we start making statements that Jesus didn't actually say. We want to be the kind of church that walks with you no matter where you've been or no matter what you decide. But if I can discourage you from walking down a road of pain because maybe you're done with it, but there's other couples in the church that says, no, 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 I was right where you're at. And God united and healed because it seems impossible to us at the moment. But we, what we think is impossible is not always impossible. And maybe if God would have us just hang on, maybe he will heal it and maybe he will unite. But maybe he won't because it takes two people willing to humbly come together and say, God, help us. Out of all the Christian couples that I have worked with who got divorced, they all ask me the same thing. Is God good with me getting divorced? Have I suffered enough? Will God give me the, the thumbs up on leaving? They just want to know what's the line where divorce is permissible. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm totally out of time, but I'm going to walk you through the, the three things that are in the Bible where Jesus says, or God says, these are permissible reasons to get divorced. The first is this, is sexual immorality. It's the word porneia. Jesus in Matthew, in Matthew 5 says this, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. He says this same thing again in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Um, again, this means in the case of sexual immorality, divorce is an option, but it's not a necessity. You with me? We've counseled couples, coached couples, when there's been unfaithfulness, and God has healed and brought together. It's possible. Uh, this Greek word, Porneia, actually just, it means sexual immorality. It's wider than just adultery, but a lot of translations just take this as in the context of marriage, it's about adultery, but the word technically really means sexual immorality. It's a little wider than that. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he's dealing with a different situation. A lot of the Christianity has spread, and as it spreads through a town, sometimes a husband's like, I want to follow Christ, and the wife is like, What? And she's not a Christian. And sometimes the wife is like, I'm all in. I want to follow Christ. And the husband's like, no. Okay, so there's marriages where one's a Christian, one's not. Paul writes this. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in, in peace. So an exception for, for divorce is this, abandonment by the unbelieving spouse. I'll give you one more. Um, and I, I, in your notes, you'll see I wrote the word opinion right there. Because you'll never find a verse in the Bible that says this is a, an exception for, for uh, getting divorced. But some pastors will say this, remarriage is acceptable when divorced before becoming a Christian. So you were not a Christian, you, didn't, you were not walking with Christ, you got divorced, now you're a Christian, you're asking, can I get remarried? And some pastors will quote things like 2 Corinthians 5.17. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. There's this principle like, that's your old life, step into your new life. Can I just be real clear? That verse is not about remarriage. But there is a principle about there's your old life, and does your old life hang over your head? Well, th- there are some, uh, some ramifications that we might carry with us. As we just, when we become Christians, we don't pretend like there's nothing behind us. Maybe what God says is, now I want you to step back into your life, not to go relive your old life, but maybe to make amends for things that have happened along the way. I'm not saying when you become a Christian, you need to get remarried. That's not in the text either. I want you to look at what the text says. And remember, I'm not speaking to your situation. So at best, if, you, if this is your pain and this is personal to you and you're considering this, you're going to have to take these texts, sit with a mature group of Christ followers and say, guys, help me. Because the truth is this, when we want something, we will go find a verse to try and convince ourselves that God is for us in that decision. So bring other people in, wise counsel, and walk through this together. I need to wrap this up. Um, Jesus is clearly discouraging divorce because he knows how painful it is. In the first century, the Romans and the Jews, they were just flippant about it. And he's like, no, 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 it's so much more painful than that. I want to warn you. So this is the text. It's a warning against divorce. Second thing is this. I've said it twice already, I'm going to say it again. As a church, we want to walk with you no matter where you've been and no matter what you decide. Because people in their most painful moments need a church to encourage them. And the third is this. What if we went back to God's original design to explore our issues, recognize that marriage was designed so that we could serve our spouse? So, what if we did this? I'm going to give you one exercise. What if we, instead of focusing on ourselves, recognize that first really is the worst? It's the worst kind of focus. It's the worst kind of life to lead. So let me invite you to do something. The entire month of February, would you do this? And maybe it's just by chance that it happens to be Valentine's month, right? (laughs) Would you do this? Once a day, every day, compliment your spouse. Once a day, every way, find a way to put your spouse first. Once a day, every way, find a way to serve your spouse. And I would dare you to have accountability with you. Tell somebody, not your spouse, because that would be weird. At the end of 28 days, you're like, look, I did this 28 days. Look how great I am. (laughs) Counterproductive. But what if you told, guys, what if you told another guy, hey, this is what I'm doing for 28 days. And what if there was a one-minute phone call or a one-minute text that you shared back and forth every day for 28 days? This is how I complimented my spouse. Ladies, what if you connected with another lady to say this? Every day we're going to connect. Email, text, phone call, one minute. Just this is what I did for my spouse. A compliment, a way to serve that is very specific. There was a couple that came to the pastor, and uh, they just said this. "We're, We're getting divorced. And the pastor said, okay, for 28 days I want you to do this. And he gave him the exact same exercise And the pastor reminded him, the Bible states, husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church. And the husband's like, listen, we're ready for divorce. I can't love her that way. God's love is so big. I don't even like her right now. I mean, how could I even love her? Pastor's like, okay. The Bible also says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love my neighbor as myself. Pastor, I can't do that. I'm too hurt. There's just too much brokenness. Pastor said, okay, that's fine. The Bible says, Love your enemies. Can we start there? 
He said, yeah, we can start there. 28 days went by and the pastor never heard from them. And they were still married. I'm not saying it's that simple. I'm not saying it's all fixed in 28 days. But every day is a choice. Because first is the worst. And if we can put that person first in our life, we can get back to God's original design. Let's pray. God, thanks. Thanks for your word. Thanks for the ways that you love us and you care for us. God, um, I would pray protection over those in the room right now from hearing something that I did not say or intend. God, we lean into your word as the thing that is powerful to transform us. And so, God, would you help us to take seriously your word? Heal us from our selfishness. Heal us from the way that, that we've been harmed. And God, would you grow us up to be these strong followers who can embrace hurt and brokenness and walk with those who aren't perfect because that's your bride. That's our family. And give us the strength and the grace to do that. And if you agree, would you simply say amen?